This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. It was a challenging time. I mean, I I write about this in Battlegrounds. I I write about the toxic environment there. The interview we've been waiting for several years for. H.R. McMaster, former National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump. And in a wide-ranging interview... He pulls no punches. I'll tell you, JJ, I've been like I've been shot at for real, you know. <laughs> and so I was, I was, you know, I was pretty, I was pretty stoic about it. I was like, okay, bring it on, you know. Let me just do the best job I can for the elected president. H.R. McMaster's book is called Battlegrounds: The Fight to Defend the Free World. We talk about that in depth. Also, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, working at the White House, his career in the military, and his career since then. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. This is episode number 247 of Target USA. And the only reason I mention that number, which is an odd fact, is because before we even did our first episode... I had been angling or looking for a way to interview H.R. McMaster, who was a general in the U.S. Army at the time, and he had written a best-selling classic book called Dereliction of Duty, which took on some uh, very important names in U.S. history, president, uh, and people who worked at the White House. Little did I know, later he would go to work at the White House himself. And... I imagine you may have some idea it's probably hard to escape some news about the rocky time that he spent at the White House working for President Trump. On this interview, he's going to talk about that time. He's going to talk about a lot of other things, including his military career and threats to the U.S., challenges, solutions, etc. So you have written a fantastic uh, new book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. First thing I'd like to ask you is why why did you decide to write this book? Well, JJ, I've been, like many of us, really concerned about how divided our society has become and how vitriolic the the, the discourse has become on all issues, but issues of foreign policy as well. And I as we're at each other's throats these days, these crucial challenges to our future are not going away. And so what I what I hope to do with the book is to to help foster a deeper uh, more full understanding of the challenges that we face as a, as a way for Americans to have civil discussions about what we need to do about those challenges uh, to reverse the polarization in our society. And ultimately, I hope to contribute to building you know, a better future for generations to come. 
So what are the top challenges or the things that you would consider at the top of the list that need to be addressed in a civil manner to uh, move the needle on where we need to do what we need to do to get to where we need to be? Well, there, there, uh, there is the challenge of, of an increasingly aggressive Chinese Communist Party and, and China's efforts not only to stifle freedom within its own borders and to extend, extend its authoritarian regime to, to the people of Hong Kong these days. And we were witnessing, obviously, a, a campaign of cultural genocide you know, in Xinjiang. But, but the Chinese Communist Party is becoming more and more aggressive externally. And in particular, they're, they're, they're promoting an authoritarian mercantilist model that I think places are, are free and open societies at, at risk. And we have to compete effectively uh, because there is no arc of history that guarantees the primacy of our free and open systems over closed authoritarian systems. Russia is, is, a, is a power that is determined under Vladimir Putin to return to national greatness. But Russia, of course, has much more limited resources than, than China does. And so you know, Putin's model is to drag us all down so that he's the last man standing. And what he wants to do is, as he's watching us really divide ourselves, he's trying to widen those divisions, to pit us against each other, to reduce our confidence in our democratic principles and institutions and processes. And we're also facing transnational threats, you know, from you know, a health threat like like a pandemic. Uh, these are threats that begin overseas, but once they reach our shores, they exact a very high cost on us. But I think that that's the same. Uh, the same can be said about jihadist terrorist organizations, who I think are gaining increasing power because of their access to to some of the most destructive weapons on earth. But also, they're just orders of magnitude larger. I mean, this this ISIS and Al Qaeda alumni are much larger than the the alumni of the Mujahideen era resistance to Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. And it was that alumni who committed the mass murder attacks of 9/11. We're facing hostile states in, in Iran. I mean, Iran is waging what is now going into a, the fourth decade of a proxy war against the great Satan, us, the little Satan, Israel and the Arab monarchies. And then, of course, we have the Kim Jong-un regime, the only communist hereditary, hereditary dictatorship in the world uh, is pursuing the most destructive weapons on Earth. And then and then, JJ, you know, we have these these threats associated with interconnected challenges of of climate change and, and environment and health security and water security and food security. And, and so the, these, these problems are getting worse as we are at each other's throats. And I think we're increasingly introspective. I mean, not without reason, but I, I think it's time for us to really have meaningful discussions about these challenges, understand them better and work together, uh, no, ma no matter what your political party is, to build a better future. General, you've laid out some very significant challenges the U.S. has to face and has been facing for 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 decades. Uh, but the challenges have gotten worse uh, in the last four years. Um, and that's not to say it's only because of the efforts um, from those countries towards the U.S., but as you mentioned, the chaos that's been going on inside the U.S. So what responsibility does the U.S. bear in um, the government of the U.S. bear in these problems worsening over the time over the years. Well, we haven't done the best job coping with them, JJ. I mean, uh, what uh, the, the term that I use in the book is strategic narcissism, and I and I think at the end of, this begins at the end of the Cold War uh, because we bought into some flawed assumptions about uh, about the nature of the post Cold War world. We believed that there was an arc of history that had guaranteed 
the primacy of our free and open societies over closed authoritarian systems. We, many of us believe that great power competition was a relic of the past, or we also believe that, that our technological military prowess guaranteed our security going into the future. And so it was this over-optimism that led to complacency and and then we forgot we had to compete. You know, we have to compete to protect our, our, our way of life and, and, and to promote peace and security and, and prosperity. So I think that complacency led to, to a setup. It was a setup for some of the strategic shocks and disappointments of the 2000s. Of course, of course the mass murder attacks of 9-11, the most devastating terrorist attack in history, followed by the unanticipated length and difficulty of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and, and then the financial crisis and and so strategic narcissism is this tendency that cuts across this period of over-optimism and then a period of pessimism, disappointment, and resignation. Uh, that, that, is, that is the obstacle we have to overcome. And that is our tendency to define the world only in relation to us and to assume that what we do will be decisive uh, to achieving favorable outcomes. It, it's, it, it's a problem because it doesn't grant authorship over the future to adversaries and, and rivals. And so what I argue in the book is that we need to inject a strong dose of strategic empathy, what the historian Zachary Shore describes as, as particular attention to, to the ideology, the emotions, the aspirations that drive and constrain the other. And, and, um, and this is an element of strategic competence that we have to regain in order to, to bolster our confidence, our confidence in our ability to implement a sustainable, long-term, sensible, reasonable foreign policy that aims to, to build a better future for generations to come. General, the White House, the Trump administration, has been at the center of every single thing you just mentioned. Uh, every single scenario where the U.S. has a big challenge facing it, the Trump administration has been at the center of that for pretty much the last, well, almost four years. Uh, and as you mentioned, we haven't done a very good job of dealing with those challenges. And looking through what I have of the book, there are some successes, um, I'm assuming, that you believe some successes uh, uh, were realized, but there have been far more failures. Am I wrong in that? Well, yes, yeah, certainly. I, I think it, it's, it's a complex scorecard there, right? So I, I would put on the success side a long overdue shift in our approach to China from cooperation and engagement that was based on the assumption that China having been welcomed into the international order would, you know, would play by the rules, would liberalize its economy and then and liberalize its form of governance. Okay, now it's it's painfully and inescapably, uh, you know, the case that, that China's doing the opposite of this. So, so the shift that the Trump administration put into place while I was there uh, to, to one of competition with China, the recognition that this is a competition, I think is, is immensely important. And it's gonna be a shift that'll carry on into, into administrations to, to come. The biggest disappointment, I think, is is in the Middle East and Afghanistan. And I think in many ways, the Trump administration, after having professing to, to, to a desire to avoid what it saw as flawed policies of the Obama administration, has in effect replicated them and, and exceeded them. And this is particularly stark and disappointing in, in Afghanistan, where, where we actually we seem to have partnered with the Taliban against the Afghan government. I mean, heck, if we wanted to just leave Afghanistan, we should have just left instead of, you know, you know do apparently you know, the, what, what it seems to be an, an effort to put the Afghan, Afghan government in an impossible position. I mean, what the Taliban are doing now, uh, based on our professed just desire to, to get out 
uh, and, and a belief that that would be an unmitigated good uh, is they've declared victory. And they're saying to the Afghans who are sitting across the table with them, hey, we just defeated the world's greatest superpower. Who are you to negotiate with us? Here's our terms. And what, what I'm concerned about, JJ, is, I mean, this, the Taliban hasn't changed. You know, what does power sharing with the Taliban look like? Is that mass executions in the soccer stadium every other Saturday? Is that every other girls' school bulldozed? And I think what we have to do is a better job of explaining to the American people how we don't want to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of troops abroad, you know, fighting these wars ourselves. But the Afghans are taking responsibility for their own security. 30 Afghan soldiers die every day. Uh, defending the freedoms that they've enjoyed since 2001. They're worthy of our support. This is one of those, I think, frontiers, modern day frontiers between barbarism and, and civilization. But how do you get, General, the people, the public, the American public to focus on that when we have all of this drama that's coming from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue that uh, arguably is unnecessary? And the with that, I would ask you, can you describe your time there in the White House? How would you characterize it? Well, you know, it was it was a challenging time. I mean, I, I write about this in Battlegrounds. I, I write about the toxic environment there. You know, I, I write about, you know, how the, you know, how the you know, vitriolic partisan politics uh, really create an environment in, in which it was difficult to do your job at times. But, you know, I'll tell you, JJ, I've been like I've been shot at for real, you know. <laughs> and so I was, I was, you know, I was pretty, I was pretty stoic about it. I was like, okay, bring it on, you know. Let me just do the best job I can for the elected president, you know. Get get him options, um, you know, and and help with the sensible implementation of his policies. And you know, we got a lot good done in in that year. Sadly, some of that's been reversed, but uh, but you know, I tried to transcend it, and that's what I'm trying to do now too, JJ. You can get drugged down into this. And become like get, get sucked into these centripetal forces that are tearing us apart, or you can just try to transcend it. You know, I, I really want to be somebody who helps bring Americans together for these kind of civil discussions about the challenges we face, and and try to try to transcend it. As you mentioned, you know, the president doesn't help a lot of times, but also sometimes JJ, JJ, the uh, you know the 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 equal and opposite reaction to Trump is just as bad. You know, and and I just think we have to. You know, those of us, you know, who want to build a better future for our children and grandchildren need to come together, you know, I, I get, and, and demand better, you know, from our leaders, demand that they bring us together, demand that they stop getting into these, you know, these partisan discussions and, and at least maybe spend us some at least equal time on what we can agree on and what we can work on together. I agree with you. I think the lion's share of the American public wants to move on from this, but you know, I think it was Benjamin Franklin that said that those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. And it's probably worse for people who don't know it. And I think a part of the reason why there's interest in this is not to rehash what went down and, you know, all the nuances and the, the details, but to just understand what was going on there in that White House. Because, and I certainly as a journalist, my only interest in this, in, in this is, is just understanding this so I can report it better is to understand just what kind of individual he was or is. And so with that, I ask you this question, what was it like to work with him, to just engage with him whenever you had to? Yeah, I'll tell you, JJ, I, I, I had written a book about Vietnam, right? I wrote a book called Dereliction of Duty. Yes, I read that. You know, how, how my Vietnam became an American war. 
And what I wrote about is, is, is during the Johnson administration, how many of his advisors had decided, hey, we're just going to tell the president what he wants to hear. We're not going to tell him you know, the, the, the truth. We're not going to give him the reality of, uh, of the situation. And of course, Lyndon Johnson, that period of time, you know, Kennedy's assassination had been November of 1963. In 1964, Johnson was preoccupied with getting elected in his own right in 65. He was determined uh, to 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 uh, you know to to pass legislation associated with the Great Society, and so forth. And he saw Vietnam principally as a danger to those domestic goals. So what he wanted is he said, "Hey, give me a strategy, right? Give me a strategy that 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 doesn't allow Vietnam to encroach on my domestic agenda." And his advisors gave him what he wanted. So I was determined not to do that, right? I was determined to set up a process that would give the president the best analysis and best advice from across departments and agencies never to hold back, never to pull any punches on anything, and then to give give him multiple options, not one shiny, uh, you know, one, sh- one shiny option and and uh, and give him give him what he wants. And so it's I think it's a service I provided. I'm glad I did it. Uh, you know, I think in, in my case, there are there were people uh, in the administration who didn't want that kind of a process that instead of giving the president multiple options, they wanted to give the president an option that was consistent with their own agenda. Right. Whether it's on, right. you know, immigration or trade or, you know, just you name it, you know, Afghanistan and South Asia. They didn't want to give the elected president options. And then there are those who kind of define themselves in the role of saving the country and the world from the president. This is kind of the anonymous author. Right. Now, the danger to our democracy, JJ, is that those second and third groups of people, I mean, they're undermining the Constitution. Nobody elected them to make policy. Right. I mean, and so the president should be accountable to the American people. And, and, and the executive branch is, you know, the, the power of the executive branch is checked by the other branches of government. Nobody elected me as national security advisor. That wasn't my job. So, so I just determined, okay, listen, I'm just going to do my best as long as I can. Uh, when people came after me, I mean, you might remember this fire McMaster campaign in yes. August of 2017, when the alt-right came after me and then the Russians, you know, the Russians jumped in. I tell that story in battlegrounds. You know, I, I just had I had a choice to make. I could fight that battle, you know, and try to keep my job at all costs, or I could just do my job and realize that when I was used up, I was used up. And I, I was at peace with that. And I got used up, but I think I, I got a lot done for the president, for the country in that period of time. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful in retrospect for having the opportunity to, to have done it. I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I had frank conversations with the president. It was a mutual decision when I left. You know, as you know, I'm one of the rare people who left on good terms. I told him, I said, listen, I, right. I, I want to help my successor. I want, you know, I wanted John Bolton to succeed. You know, I spent time with him. I, I told our staff, give full access to him before he took over the job. And, and, uh, and, you know, we, we, we all need to pull together in this country. That's the attitude I took to the job. You're right. It was a, it was at times a toxic, difficult environment, but Again, my attitude was, you know, bring it on and I'll just do my best under the conditions that that I had to deal with. You know, Ar- Aristotle, I think, said it is only worth discussing what is in our power. Right? <laughs> and so I tried to focus, you know, what was in my power yeah. on what was in my power and do the best job I could. Yeah. Again, you're right. And um, thank you for sharing. I, I know that that's not something that you're keen to do. Uh, and the book tells me that because you're focused on the facts. You're focused on the challenges, the threats, the risks, and uh, where we need to go. And right now it appears as though where we need to go is through Russia and China. You've mentioned them a little bit earlier. You know, North Korea's out there and Iran as well. But uh, I'd like to get some insight from you on what Russia is doing right now with, well, first of all, trying to reprise its 
2016 election interference operation. What are your thoughts on what they're up to? Well, I'll tell you, JJ, what they're trying to do is drag us down, right? And 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 you know they're you know they're attacking our elections, right? Well, this goes back to the 2016 election, but really that's just one campaign in a much broader campaign of cyber-enabled information warfare against us. And what I write about in the book is is Russian new generation warfare and and what I call Putin's playbook. And Putin's playbook is is one of disruption, disinformation, and denial, right? The three Ds. And they want they want to disrupt us. Uh, and 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 disrupt our confidence in who we are as a people and in our democratic principles and institutions and processes. Uh, they, they do that with disinformation, disinformation to widen divides that already exist in our society. They they spend about eighty they spend about eighty percent of their time and effort on dividing us on issues of race. Uh, a distant second and third are issues of immigration and and gun control. So whatever it is that you know that we we you know that we can that, they, that can be used to divide us, they'll do it. Russia doesn't have the power to confront us directly, as I mentioned. So they they, they want to drag us down. Putin sees himself as as somebody who can be the last man standing uh, as the democracies in Europe and in North America destroy as we destroy ourselves, right? And and so we have to recognize that they they don't care who wins the election. I, I don't think JJ what they what they care about is whoever wins. That we that there are large portions of the American population that don't have confidence in the outcome, and uh, and so it's it's incumbent on all of our leaders, the president included, but everybody to to you know to restore confidence in our democratic processes. I'll tell you, JJ, our our election process is is secure. It we have done a lot to secure it. When I when I was in the jobs, one of the things I'm proud of, you know, is that that we convened efforts across the departments and agencies. We took the gloves off our cyber forces. In recognition that the good offense is necessary uh, to a good defense, uh, we we establish new organizations like the Cyber Infrastructure Security Organization, and and uh, and and you know we have a very decentralized system, right? It's tough to attack for that reason, but we establish federal standards, and and the federal government's working routinely now with the states on on securing the election process. If I hear you correctly, when it comes to Russia, what you're saying is Russia can't beat us. But what they want to do is, as you say, to drag the U.S. down, and that would be their victory. That that that's the victory they're after. They can't do, they can't win head to head in a military or any other kind of battle that matters. So what they want to do, their victory comes from uh, trying to create a negative here, essentially, uh, in in the U.S. Trying to put the U.S. in a situation where. It's caught up in itself, and, and and chaos reigns. That that would be their victory. Is that right? Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, and and this is what what Russia is trying to do because they don't have the strength. JJ, is what they're trying to do, is 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 accomplish their objectives below the threshold that what uh, of what might elicit a concerted response, right? And and this is that third D of denial. So the, they'll conduct the most egregious acts. You know, they'll. They'll try to, to murder Sergei Skripal and his daughter using a nerve agent, you know, in April of, of 2018 in Salisbury, England, placing thousands of people at risk. And they'll say, oh, that, you know, that wasn't us. Or, or just more recently, the, the poisoning of Navalny with a, a nerve agent and suggesting, well, well, maybe he poisoned himself or in 2014 over Ukraine, shooting down an airliner with incontrovertible evidence uh, on social media and many other sources showing it was a Russian Army missile that shot that, and then just deny it, right? So, 
you know, in the book, I describe this as implausible deniability. And what's really important to do is pull the curtain back on this and, you know, and, and, and show the, the American people what's happening and, and, and peoples in the free world uh, to expose the behavior of Russia and impose costs on Russia. And, and, uh, and I think that, that recognizing the threat is, is the first step. I think any you know, statements that, you know, that, that, don't, uh, that don't completely exp- you know, don't expose Russia's efforts and give him you know, the ability to continue to deny it is really, you know, we're, we're, we sometimes act as our own worst enemy. Yeah, absolutely. The situation in the U.S. right now is not very good um, at all when it comes to, I mean, this is just being real. This is not being pessimistic. This is just looking at the, the nation as a whole with all of the consternation going on from from the political divisions. And we don't do politics here. We just do national security. But it's gotten to the point where we have situations where there are armed groups that are looking for opportunities to kidnap sitting governors. And we just discovered today, um, this being the 13th of October, that Virginia governor, Ralph Northam, perhaps was on that list too. And there may be others. So how does the U.S. position itself to fix itself and deal with this kind of deep-seated animosity and anger before it's too late. Well, you know, we we'll have to all come together as as Americans and drown out uh, these purveyors of, of hatred and intolerance and racism and bigotry. Uh, and and you know, th- this is you know, this is a this is a problem on what you might call the right, but you could say that there there are also extreme movements on the left as well, right? And and I think you know, it's incumbent on all leaders. To you know, to disavow extremists on both sides of the, of the political spectrum. Now, I know that the term "both sides" is, you know, has become you know itself difficult to say because of the the president's really you know Charlottesville uh, inept, inept yeah approach to Charlottesville. You know, and I mean, how easy should it be to condemn white supremacists? Okay, I mean that should be super easy right, for anybody for anybody to do. Um, but it should also be super easy to to really um, to denounce anyone. Who in, in, instead of giving voice, right, giving voice to their to their anger, their frustration, their disappointment with the government through through legal and peaceful protests, instead uses protests to advance a criminal or extremist agenda, right? Americans can do both. We can both embrace, you know, the the, the, uh, the those who are who are angry and who who demand reform after the murder of George Floyd, and, and those who demand. You know that you know, you know, overdue efforts to address inequality of opportunity in our country. Uh, we should celebrate our, our our ability to do that, but it should also be just as easy to condemn uh, ex- extremists. Uh, you know who who don't want to participate in our democracy, uh, who instead uh, who instead want to to foster ideologies of intolerance. Uh, and so I, I I think JJ we we you know these people should have zero traction among our leaders. You know and. And uh, and and people from you know the the president to to really his the people who you know have an intense dislike for the president. This is something we should all be able to get behind and say, okay, you know, en- enough of this. We have rule of law in our country. We have representative government. It may disappoint us at times, but what we should celebrate, JJ, is we have a say in how we're governed. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, you know, the Chinese people don't have a say in how they're governed. They don't have due process of law. Uh, and, and even if, if you're disappointed uh, in the Breonna Taylor uh, verdict, you know, it, it, at least it was a grand jury process. Maybe there's redress to pursue beyond that. 
maybe there are new laws that could be put in place, maybe new regulations uh, in, in terms of uh, of police actions, uh, for example, uh, that, that can prevent that kind of horrible uh, uh, tragedy from ever happening again. But we do have recourse. What I'm concerned about is, you know, people who uh, who who feel as if they're disenfranchised and therefore they feel powerless. Mm-hmm. We have to empower our citizens to participate in our democratic process. I mean, that's mm-hmm. why it's important for everybody to vote, right? right. I mean, be, be a stakeholder in this process. And I know, JJ, I mean, I, I've mentioned in previous interviews, when I was on active duty, I never voted. I, I was studiously apolitical. And that's 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 not you know not a typical position. I, I did that, you know, based on my my uh, view of George Marshall, General George Marshall, you know, who was the organizer of victory in World War II and yes. a great secretary of state who put together the Marshall Plan. You know, he was he was completely apolitical and, and chose not to vote. So I from age 17, when I went to West Point, I, I didn't vote, but I'm going to vote now. And and I think that's uh, everybody should feel as if they're a stakeholder in our democracy. I'm not going to ask you who you vote for. I mean, I just wouldn't do that anyway. But I'm kind of saying this as a joke. But that's not funny, I guess. Um, but <laughs> you're voting now, and that's a good thing in the fact that you have a chance to do that. Um, very last thing, North Korea. Um, speaking of people who have a say and don't have a say, that right now seems to be a problem that's re-manifesting itself with this brand-new Wasong-16 missile, 90 feet tall, and 10 feet in diameter and perhaps can reach the whole of the U.S. with them having 20 to 60 nuclear weapons. What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think it's difficult to, you know, to, uh, to overstate the danger from a nuclear-armed North Korea for a number of reasons. First of all, as you've mentioned, these missiles that can reach the United States with the most destructive weapons on Earth. But also we should remember that, you know, why do we think Kim Jong-un wants them? You know, he says the word deterrence and so forth, but every act of aggression on the Korean peninsula since June of 1950, the beginning of the Korean War, was initiated by the North Korean regime. Again, the only the only communist hereditary dictatorship in the world. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think we, we have to at least be open to the possibility that, that Kim Jong-un wants the weapons for why his family has said they want them from the beginning which is the forcible reunification of the peninsula under the so-called, quote, red banner, right? And, and, uh, and so I, I think you know, these, this nuclear capability could be used for extortion to try to get the U.S. Out of, out of Northeast Asia as the first step to isolating Japan and then to, to, to really, again, you know, for, for them to drag South Korea down and dominate South Korea. I think that's what they may have in mind. But also, you know, what effect does it have on the non-proliferation regime? Like, who doesn't get a weapon next? Does Japan start having discussion? Well, maybe we need one to deter North Korea. How about South Korea? How about other countries in the region? And North Korea has never met a weapon it didn't try to sell to somebody, including their nuclear weapons program to Syria, uh, until the Israeli Defense Force bombed uh, the nuclear reactor they were help build, helping, helping to build in the Syrian desert in 2007. So... This is extremely dangerous. And I think what we need to do at this stage is double down on this campaign of maximum pressure and and, and then try doubly hard to convince China uh, or to impose sanctions on China if they don't enforce UN Security Council resolu- resolutions. You saw Kim Jong-un and, and during this parade, you know, he shed some tears, you know, about the hardships to the people. Yes. But these are these are hardships inflicted on the people by their own regime, obviously. I mean, these are people, uh, this is a regime that's a gulag state. It's a regime that is spending 
money lavishly, you know, on these these weapons while its people remain destitute. And by the way, it's also building new palaces for him and erecting monuments, you know, to 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 honor him and his forebears. You know, so yeah. So I mean, this 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 regime is, is sometimes it, it seems comical, right, when you look at Kim Jong Un and 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 as policies and statements, you know, that that are meant to to make him seem infallible and and you know and the you know the with the moniker the great successor and so forth but but it's it's not it's not funny uh it, it's a serious problem and and it's one that we have to keep our, our eye on and and maintain re, you know a resolute effort to to at least test the thesis that the regime can be convinced that it is more safe without the most destructive weapons on earth than it is with them yeah you know that's brilliant thank you for saying that and thank you for putting that into context Along with everything else that you said today, nobody's fallen for Kim Jong-un's tears, um, you know, and for the very reasons that you mentioned it. Um, it's best to be in full possession of information so that we can make informed decisions as opposed to being in the dark about anything. And that certainly is what's taking place there in that country. Sir, thank you for your time today. Uh, is there anything you want to add before we go? Yeah, JJ, it's been a pleasure to be with you. I would just say to, to your young listeners, look for opportunities to serve, to serve in our military, to serve in our government. There are tremendous rewards associated with it. You know, I mean, our, our nation needs you. Your fellow Americans need you. Uh, I think uh, I think getting involved in educational reform and and making sure that that all Americans have equality of opportunity, that, you know, that that your your chances in, in life aren't diminished you know, based on what zip codes you're born in. There are so many ways to serve. I, I look back on 34 years in, in our military. I'm so grateful for the gift of, of that service every day. And, uh, and, and I hope more young Americans will recognize that there are these, these less tangible but profound benefits of, of serving their fellow citizens and, and serving humankind. And thanks for the opportunity to be with you, JJ. All right, sir. Thank you. And good luck with the book and uh, best to you and your family. And Hopefully we can uh, circle up you and I again sometime in the near future. Hey, I look forward to it, JJ. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Take care, sir. Bye-bye. General H.R. McMaster. The book is called Battlegrounds, The Right to Defend the Free World. Heck of a story. And if you think that's a heck of a story, check this out. It was 2 a.m., December 5th, 2017. I awoke kind of to a start. I had incredible vertigo, nausea. I couldn't even stand up. Mark Polymeropoulos was undercover with the CIA in Moscow on business. For a week, he was down, thinking it was food poisoning, but it wasn't. And later in the week, he was hit again. It kind of knocked me out for another 24 hours, and then I barely crawled on the airplane and uh, made it home. And there's one chief suspect. Pretty strong circumstantial case that the Russians were behind us. Lasers or microwaves are suspected, as was the case in China and Cuba. Now, there are legitimate concerns about whether it's happening right here in the U.S. But his biggest worry today? A reluctance at CIA to acknowledge that something has happened to us and to get us the treatment that we need. That's coming up in the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about our program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more information about national and international security, 
Sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. was coming. Guess who? Oh. Let me start this thing off. Join me every week for the Michael Irvin Podcast. We'll give you the full MIP experience. I'm talking everything from football to fashion. I will be chopping it up with playmakers, headline makers, and I am throwing haymakers. I'm the MVP of the MIP. Don't miss it. Download new episodes of the MIP, the Michael Irvin podcast, every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press. 